This is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, you'll join Betsy Nash, the grape nut, as she learns about wine tasting etiquette. If you just can't quite wrap your mind around literally spitting the wines out, then just taking a sip or two and then dumping the rest, mm-hmm. it will never hurt it a winery person's feeling. Okay. Also, you'll learn about a new local water sustainability project called Central Coast Blue. Now as we draw more groundwater from Central Coast Blue, we won't be relying on Lopez as much. We'll be able to save that water. We have an incentive to save that water because we keep 100% of it. The stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, October 10th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangeman. Wine tasting has become a way of life here on the Central Coast, and there are some general do's and don'ts that help make it a more enjoyable experience for you and for those around you in the tasting room. Betsy Nash is the grape nut, and she does the research for us on wine tasting etiquette. I'm with Maggie Tillman from Alta Kalina Winery in the Adelaide District, and we're talking today about etiquette in the tasting room. If you notice that things have changed when you've gone wine tasting, you're right. It's no longer belly up to the bar. It is now kind of an experience. Is that how you would describe it? I would absolutely describe it that way. COVID, you know, we all had to adjust accordingly. And one of the things that came out of that that is not universal, but has pretty much stayed throughout wine country locally is a by-reservation approach. Mm -hmm. So when we first reopened in June 2020, we had to meter the number of people in an area at one time. And reservations were a great way to do it. Yeah. And we found that we can actually provide a really wonderful experience that way. We know you're coming, we've got seats for you, we've got a host for you, we're staffed appropriately. We can really kind of dictate the pace of the day in a way that can make it a really wonderful experience. But it is different than how it always was, you know? Did it throw people off at first? Honestly, it's throwing people off more now, I would say. Because I think people in 2020 and 2021, everyone expected things to be disrupted. Oh, gotcha. And they expected things to not look how they've always looked. And as things have reopened and we're able to move around a lot more easily and freely, we're seeing a big spike in folks who are cruising around, seeing what's open, seeing where they can walk in. And and we're trying to balance that. And we've just changed how we've done things. So we're in a little bit of a moment of transition ourselves, I would say, to work a hybrid of reservations and walk-ins. Okay. So that's how Alta Kalina is doing it. How about your neighbors, the others? Are they all pretty much sticking with it or are they going to go hybrid also? You know, of course, there are wineries on either end of the spectrum who are very strictly just reservations. There are places that are all about walk-ins. But I know a lot of our neighbors, particularly the small places, are going to this hybrid thing. So what we say on our website right now is reservations recommended, walk-ins welcome. Okay. Okay. And when we can say yes, we'd always do. People are making an effort to come and find us and try the wines. And as long as we can give you a great experience, we will say yes. And sometimes we find that we have more seats than staff. So in that scenario, we can offer by the glass and by the bottle. So oh, when we know oh. that we can't yeah. give you a great experience over a flight, uh-huh. we, we still want to invite you in to hang out with us in the wines. So I asked Maggie to take me through a regular tasting. So what did you just pour for me? 
I just poured you a really unique red wine. We call this Carbonic Grenache. Carbonic. Carbonic. That's so scary. It, I know. Or people think it has bubbles. You know, yeah. It's carbonated. Yeah, carbonated. Carbonic is a different approach to fermentation. And the wines that come out of this method are really light bodied. They're very low tannin. So these are wines mm. that are to drink young, to drink right now. Yeah. We want you to consume this bottle over the next year. And our Carbonic Grenache, we actually encourage you to keep it in the fridge. Well, so yeah. It's chilled red. I'm smelling strawberries. Isn't it delicious? Grenache delicious. Those bright red fruits. Mmm. Stick my nose in there and, I would and love taste to it. Join you, mm. <laughs> I love this wine. What we're really known for at Alta Clean are bigger, richer reds. We're all about Rome varieties, mm. so Grenaches, Syrahs, blends. Mm. And our Carbonic Grenache is a really cool extension of what our vineyard can do. It's really got a lot going on. You know, the um, the finish and stuff is really strong and really good. It is not it's, shy. So it's not, yeah, <laughs> shy. Good. I it's like not, it. It's light-bodied, but it is mm. an extrovert still. Well, yeah, boy. So, so let's say I don't like it. Yeah, it's good. You went right for the spit jar, as I call it. You can okay. call it whatever you want. <laughs> dump bucket. Thank you. Spit. Dump it's bucket. Tune. Well, so that's what I want to ask. Do I dump? I definitely don't spit, right? You can isn't that kind of gross? It is, but and you're an totally insult? invited. It's not an insult at all. Okay. It's absolutely not an insult. Yeah. And it would be amazing if we could all just drink all of the wine, but that would end poorly for everyone. <laughs> so well, it's never rude. <laughs> so at Alta Colina, we can put out a dump bucket, mm -hmm. and then for folks who are spitting, we'll, because it is kind of gross mm -hmm. to look at, mm -hmm. we'll bring out another a small, like a metal cup or a black solo cup okay. or something that's sort of a personal oh, good. vessel, and then you can put that into the larger dump. Okay, I like it. As I like needed. It. Now, do you think those are the pros that are doing that, the people that really know that they can't drink everything, but they want to taste it? Yes, but the pros like to drink it too. So it depends on what you're going for, right? <laughs> If you are out on a wine tasting day with your girlfriends, you're having a good time, that is much more rare. Yeah. So yeah. even yeah. the most famous wine writer in the world, if she's on a girl's weekend, she may or may not be spitting the wines as she goes. <laughs> Our job, we cannot serve anyone who is noticeably intoxicated. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it can put someone working in a tasting room in a tricky position sometimes, but wine tasting is also a during the day activity mm -hmm. for the most part. At 1 p.m., people aren't rolling in the way they might roll into Bull's Tavern at 1 a.m., you know? <laughs> yes. But spitting is a great way to do it. I know it, it feels weird and it feels rude, and if you just can't quite wrap your mind around literally spitting the wines out, then just taking a sip or two and then dumping the rest, mm -hmm. it will never hurt it a winery person's feelings. Okay, but what will? I mean, do people say things like, oh, this tastes like... That is, that's why it hurts our feelings. Yeah, you don't do you like really wine, hear that sort of thing? Almost never, yeah, but sometimes. Yeah. So the only time my feelings are sort of hurt, I don't mind it if you don't like it. You know, that's part of why you're wine tasting. We don't all like everything. Yeah. But it's my family, and it's a handmade product, and we, we work really hard on these wines, and, and I know that they're well-made. And so then it's just up to you. Like, I don't like coffee, which everyone thinks is crazy. I don't either. Really? You're the only other one. Uh-huh. Great to meet you. Very great to meet you. Yeah. We've bonded. Yeah. But, you know, I wouldn't go into the neighborhood coffee shop and be like, why does it smell like trash in here? <laughs> so it's, you know, just sort of be thoughtful that there's craftsmanship and, and humans put a lot of effort and time in, into making something lovely. And 
it's okay if you don't like it. That's what tasting is for. And just be okay. kind about it. Well, yeah. And I worry that later in the day, as people have had more to drink, that some of those inhibitions of politeness and stuff are going to go away. But I guess that's something that tasting room staff really do have to be trained for, because that's a sign of probably of intoxication or just being a jerk. And I guess you just have to deal with it. It's true. And again, thankfully, it's really rare. Good, good. And it, I would say that's one of the things on our end of a wine tasting. We see that a lot less now, post-COVID. Mm. And I think that is because before when you would belly up to the bar, you could go to five or six wineries in a day. Mm -hmm. And now these are seated tastings. Oh, good point. You're enjoying the wines over a longer period of time. If you can get to four in a day, I'm really impressed. But for the most part, people are going to two or three. Mm -hmm. It's a little more leisurely. Maybe they're snacking along the way, bringing lunch. I've seen less of the... This place is open at the yeah. end of the day and swerving into the driveway to cruise on one more tasting, which I think is a really positive thing for, for not only us as winery staff, um, but also, you know, everyone's going to have a better night and tomorrow if they're not out of their mind by 4 I agree. I agree. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. Betsy Nash is the grape nut, and she's learning about wine tasting etiquette at Alta Colina Winery with Maggie Tillman. So I'm going to move on to another, do I want to rinse my glass? I don't encourage rinsing between tasting. But this is going to have a little bit about, of that Grenache in it. It is. And if it's a concern, you can always ask for a rinse. So what a rinse is, is I pour you a quarter of an ounce and you swirl it around in the glass and then you dump it out into the dump bucket. You rinse it with the next one we're gonna have. Yes. Gotcha, makes yeah. sense, okay. And oh. I, that's, so if someone asks, I would absolutely do that. Mm -hmm. Or if we were going from say, a red wine back to a white wine, or going from something sweet to something dry. Anytime you see a wine flight, mm -hmm. so you go from the lighter wine to a bigger, richer wine at the end. And the idea is by doing that, you really don't need to worry about rinsing. I do discourage rinsing with water. And in life, you know, you're drinking a glass of wine, you pour some water in there, have more wine. You're not doing it wrong. Tastings are little, though. There's just not that much in the glass. And the pH of water and the pH of wine are very different. Oh, interesting. So water can kind of neutralize the wine in a way that makes it less enjoyable to drink. You know, I've been drinking wine for 50 years, and I only just learned that because I noticed that somebody was kind of looking askance at me when I rinsed my glass, and so I went home and looked it up and learned, oh, no, 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 you don't do that. It's not ideal, but again, it's... I know, you're not going to slap my hand. No, and wine is something to be enjoyed and to bring people together, and oh, there's, you're not doing it wrong. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I, I like that. Maggie Tillman, the owner of Alta Colina, is being gracious enough to walk me through the do's and don'ts of tasting, and a lot of it is just common courtesy, um, and people not being drunk. Most of is... it is that, exactly. <laughs> Just but... be a nice person, have a good time, and don't be rude to my staff. Yeah, there you go. That, that takes care of it. But it's also some things like somebody might not have thought of wiping off their lipstick or rinsing their glass, which I just learned is not the right thing to do. So we've got a GSM. Tell people what a GSM is. GSM is the acronym for the three grapes that are in this blend. So it's a blend of Grenache, Syrah, and Morved. And wine 
it's one of those topics that I think all of us are trained from being little that wine is for fancy people and sophisticated people. That's why I'm here. It's exactly. It's why we're both here. You're not supposed to Very laugh. Sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> and at Alta Galena, we are about quality wine, and I also feel so strongly about our guests feeling incredibly welcome at every level. If you want to geek out about rootstock yeah. on a North Face, we can do that with mm -hmm. you. That's my and that's my son-in-law. Perfect. Send him on over. <laughs> or if you want to know. The difference between Syrah and Shiraz, we, we can answer that. Yeah. I always want people to feel like they can ask any question. I noticed that you're calling your tasting room staff educators. Mm -hmm. Have you always called them that, or is that also one of these things about it being an experience post-COVID? At Alta Kalina, we're very casual. We're a small team, and we let our team choose their own titles. Oh. And they chose tasting room educator, which mm -hmm. I love, because that educational piece is we're nerdy. <laughs> Dad and I are big nerds, and we love, not in an annoying, pedantic way, but our team is incredibly knowledgeable, and they love answering whatever question might be, so I love the title, Wine Educator. I've heard it before at other wineries, so I guess what the message then to people coming is to ask the questions, ask the questions, or at least if you don't even know the questions to ask, say, what should I know about this? That's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. And then you guys can nerd out yeah. and tell them everything. Absolutely. What are we pouring now? This is our old 900 Syrah, also from the 2019 vintage. I have to tell you, when I saw this online, I thought it said old goo. It's a font thing. <laughs> we have so many people do that. So we, if you come and look behind the bar, we label the boxes old goo because oh. we think it's hilarious. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. I brought a little food to try. That's great. So I have some leftover steak. I cut it with clean hands. You're welcome to some. But I was taught years and years ago that the red wines taste better with fats in your mouth. That is often true. And when it comes to tannic wines, so again, you know, that sort of rough texture, mm -hmm. a little bit of fat just cuts that. Mm -hmm. So That's you know, I if, brought this. If you're drinking Grenache off of Alta Plana Vineyard, for example, has mm -hmm. really healthy tannins mm -hmm. and when you're drinking it in the tasting room in a lineup that's not how you drink wine in real life right i always suggest if people say oh man these tannins are are intense i so just imagine with a burger you mm -hmm. know like a bite of a burger um and it really changes the sort of the flow of the wine and often in a really really nice way and that's what they're for mm. keep talking i'm still chewing oh great perfect <laughs> and we all love food and so with our tasting notes, the information that we tell you, and it'll vary from winery to wineries. Some wineries just tell you nothing, and some wineries mm -hmm. it'll be a page. <laughs> and so we include you know, one sentence that's about the wine, okay. just something simple about where it's on, where it's cited on the vineyard, or a quality that tends to come forward with it. And then we just have fun as a team making ourselves hungry, thinking about the food that a given wine would be delicious with, so we like to write those down. Well, no, I think it's important, and again, want to tell the listeners that the other grape nuts that you should ask questions Always. and not be embarrassed to ask the questions. Absolutely not. I used to be embarrassed, really embarrassed. And there are times when I am in an establishment and the vibe of the place, you know, a really high-end restaurant, oh. they it's intimidating. Yes, right. And it happens to everybody, and I really hope as an industry that we're outgrowing that. Mm -hmm. Again, there's no reason why everyone should know this stuff, and being made to feel stupid 
is bad customer service. It's just not someone's job. You know, their job is to help you have a really wonderful meal or answer that thing you've always wondered about anything. Yeah. Um, that's in a tasting room or in a restaurant or in a shop. At least, yeah, that's something I feel very strongly about. Well, I see that. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. Betsy Nash is the grape nut, and she's learning about wine tasting etiquette at Alta Colina Winery with Maggie Tillman. So that makes me think of tipping. When I'm getting this education now, I'm not just getting poor, 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 and oh, may I ask you about, you know, kind of thing. I'm getting a lot of attention, and I would think that much like a server in a restaurant, you would tip your educator, your tasting room person. That is more and more the case. Is it? That's something that about 10 years ago, it was not expected. And in the last five, it's really depended on where you were. As a winery owner, one of the big question marks for us was, you know, we use point of sale software. Mm -hmm. So when you swipe the card, one of the big questions was, do we turn on the tip line? Oh, And it was sort of a cultural shift within wine. And I think you're exactly right. The level of knowledge, the level of service, and especially now with things being seated and more of an experience, I think that it's a really wonderful courtesy and a nice thank you to a great tasting room staff person. So we've seen in restaurants it go pretty much from an expected or usual 15% to 20%. Is the guideline similar? For educators, tasting room staff? I don't know. In my head, it's sort of anywhere of 10% and up. But I think it, it depends on the nature of the experience and the price of the bottle. And I expect if you asked a different winery person, they'd give you a different answer to that. I was going to say, have you ever asked your staff? <laughs> <laughs> it's rare that folks don't tip at this point. Is it? And oh, okay. even if you're somewhere enjoying a tasting, you aren't planning on purchasing bottles. Yeah. But you okay. want to have a wonderful day in wine country, leaving 5 to 20 bucks, I think, is a really nice thank you to, to great service. Tasting fees have gone up. They have. They have gone up. And, you know, So I see on that Facebook page, I remember when you used to be able to go anywhere and taste for free. And then you'll see people in the wine industry go, yeah, well, things were a lot cheaper then. And we lost a lot of money doing that. And not everybody buys blah, blah, blah. Yep. So there are a lot of different ways I see it done now. A higher tasting fee. I think Napa is like 60 bucks or something for tasting. Average. Napa is incredibly expensive to visit. Yeah. And then some places don't even give you credit if you buy a bottle of wine. So we have three different tasting options. Okay. Our tasting room flight, which is, you know, when we're talking about wine tasting, that's what you're picturing, is you come to a tasting room and, and there's other groups around enjoying the wines. We charge $25 per flight. Is that what I'm having as a flight? Exactly. Uh-huh. So for us, it's usually five wines. It could mm-hmm. be sort of four to six wines. And we waive one of those fees per three-bottle purchase. Okay, okay. And that's gone up. When we first started in 2009, I think our tasting fee was $5. Mm-hmm. So in just over a decade, we've more than quadrupled. Now, is that because what the market will bear or is it because your costs have gone up? Is it because just the culture has changed? D, all of the above? All of the above, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so the level of experience, much, much higher. True. I want to be a good employer. We have an incredible staff. I want to be able to pay them a base hourly wage mm-hmm. that isn't completely unreasonable. 
And by that, you mean low, yeah. like minimum wage, right? Yeah. yeah. And I'd love to pay them more, but again, costs of everything yeah. are up. Something that happened with reservations, what we've seen is more guests in a day at a much higher level of service. So the team is right. busier. Right. It takes a lot more work mm -hmm. per person mm -hmm. um, to sort of execute compared to belly up to the bar, really casual. So I think all of those are factors. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. Betsy Nash is the grape nut, and she's learning about wine tasting etiquette at Alta Colina Winery with Maggie Tillman. So you don't want to be the cheapest tasting fee on the street, right? Not really. It's Wine is one of those products that price of experience, price of a bottle has a big influence on the perception of the quality. Well, that's part of the snootiness, isn't yes. it? Yes. And, yeah. and I'll read articles all the time saying, best bottles under $15, that kind of thing. And I'm thinking, whoa, are there still some good ones? So I'm glad somebody's looking at it. But I do expect greater quality out of the higher-priced wines. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's often true. Not always. There are examples of wines yeah. that are, are very expensive, and it's hard to understand why they're that much more <laughs> expensive. But that's a that's a real thing. And, you know, as, a, as an owner, we think about that a lot. We want people to walk in understanding that we are a high-end producer making incredibly high-quality wines. Mm -hmm. But we also don't want to price everyone out. Right. Uh, Maggie, as we finish up, it seems to me that you're pretty easygoing. Usually. And that, uh, <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right. Well, what'll really cross you up? Not a ton. It's more, you know, just if someone is rude, it's tough to That's bring the... your best customer service self in that situation, but it's very, very rare. So. Yeah. That is really the, the feeling that I've gotten in talking to you. But there are a couple of last things I want to ask you about. Is it okay to ask for another taste of something? A revisit. Is that what it's a called? A splash. A splash. It is. You know, the idea is sort of the etiquette is this is a wine I'm thinking about maybe purchasing. Sure. I'd like a reminder because I've tasted four other wines or five other wines. Okay. You know, it's less a let's do the flight again for free kind oh, of, of a thing. Of that's course. that's less welcome, I, I will say. But certainly, you know, you can't keep track of everything in your head, even with notes. Yeah. So a splash or two is totally welcome. All right. Do you usually help the people define the wines? I noticed when you and I were talking about wines, I'd say, oh, I, I smell this or I smell that. And you didn't say, oh, but do you pick up the blah, blah, blah. Do you usually not do that? Do you usually I usually don't. Yeah. And if you look in our notes, for example, right. we don't actually include descriptors. And the reason is, and a lot of people do, and a lot of people have really beautiful descriptions right. of wines. Right, I've seen them. And the reason why we opt not to is the power of suggestion is such a yeah. real thing with wine. Yeah. So if what you're picking up is toasted marshmallow, but then I start talking about something else, yeah. then it can interrupt the way you're tasting. Not necessarily a bad thing. We just opt to really let everyone sort of have their own experience with it. Okay. And I'm very much a believer that there's no wrong answer. You're not doing it wrong if you don't taste the thing in the notes. Yes. I think that notes can be really helpful and wine descriptions can be really helpful, but it can also feed that intimidation factor mm -hmm. of, I don't know what creme de cassis is, what am I supposed to be tasting here? And yes. the answer is just like, don't worry about it. If something jumps out at you, if you're tasting rosé and you think, oh man, this reminds me of strawberries, right. great. Yeah. And if it doesn't, that's fine too. I had an interview with a psalm and I read some of those 
really flowery, long things, and I'm saying, what the heck does this mean? So we <laughs> talked about some of those really wild words that are, I think, that are intimidating. Yeah. I think it can be. The only time I've ever seen the word unctuous written in my life is in a tasting note. And I'm like, this is an SAT word, man. Like, I'm just trying to have a glass of wine. I think the theme throughout the uh, the interview we've had with you today is just don't be afraid to ask questions. Absolutely. Yeah, I really get that. One last question. No, a couple more. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> is it okay to share a tasting? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. And I think of it a bit like using the dump bucket. If you drank all of the wine... It's not necessarily going to make for a very fun day okay. or night or next day. Okay. It's absolutely reasonable to share a flight. Okay. My daughter and my partner don't really drink very much, but I'll know, oh, you're going to like this. Here, take a sip of it. Don't drink the whole thing. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah. Also, the other thing I was thinking is that I brought my own steak from Ember. You probably don't really want people to bring their own food, do you? I don't mind at all. Oh. Every winery has a different approach, so yeah. some have full commercial kitchens and restaurants, and that would probably be less appropriate right. to bring someone else's, you know, your own food into a restaurant, for example. We offer cheese plates, cheese and charcuterie plates, but if folks bring their own snacks, we totally welcome it. Okay. Again, it really, it can change the way you interact with the wines. Yes. And it's much more representative of how we actually drink wine, mm -hmm. right, is mm -hmm. with food, over mm -hmm. a meal. Um, so I, I don't mind it. The only thing that I, I request, particularly for folks who want to be seated indoors, is that it is not odorous. Gotcha. Sure. Because it can certainly distract. Yeah. It's kind of in the same camp as perfume. Well, I, exactly. I totally yeah. get that. So let's summarize Probably the best thing to do is to call or look at the website to see what kinds of experiences are offered. So have an idea of what you want in terms of an experience. And then call the winery up and say, hi, I want to come and have blah, blah, blah. By that time, you would hope they already know about, say, for example, your three different kinds of tastings. Would you sort of on the phone kind of walk them back through them? We certainly can. Not everyone likes to book things online. But you can just book mm. straight online. Mm. What we say on our website now is reservations highly recommended. Walk-ins totally welcome on a first-come, first-served basis. And, that, and I think we've learned that that's probably pretty much the way it's going to be for anybody that wants to do some tasting. That's in the often true. Often world. true. Yeah. And if you go somewhere hoping to taste and they don't have a spot for you, don't get mad at them because they could be understaffed. You know, there could just be factors at play that are that are hard to know and. This is wine country. We really want people to come and visit us and our neighbors and have a good time. And we're also running small businesses in strange times. I think that's well put. Maybe that's a good way to end it. This has been fun. You, wine you doesn't have, have to be serious. You have been very uh, entertaining as you've educated me. Thank you. So thank you, Maggie. That's it for this month's Grape Nut. Glad to have you with us. Thank you. Betsy Nash is the grape nut on KCBX. She's been speaking with Alta Colina Winery's Maggie Tillman. Join the grape nut on Issues and Ideas Monthly as she explores the wine regions of the Central Coast. Central Coast Blue is a local water sustainability project that aims to create a new reliable water supply for the five cities' communities. Up next... KCBX contributor Stu Soren speaks with Ben Fine, Public Works Director and Engineer for the City of Pismo Beach. As we continue to explore the effects of climate change on our central coast, water drives many of the conversations. 
Where does it come from and will we have enough? One of the most interesting solutions rests in South County where five governmental agencies have come together to initiate a project dubbed Central Coast Blue. Joining me today is Ben Fine, project manager for Central Coast Blue. Welcome, Ben. Glad to have you here today. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So, Ben, just in an overview, can you just tell us a little bit about the project and then we'll get into it in more detail? Sure. So, Central Coast Blue is a regional recycled water project that will take the effluent from the city of Pismo Beach wastewater treatment plant. Effluent is the discharge. Uh, it'll take that uh, water, that raw water, it'll send it through an advanced uh, treatment facility. It'll purify that water to beyond drinking water quality and then inject it into the groundwater basin. Uh, currently in the state of California, there's not regulations for what's called DPR, or direct potable reuse. Uh, so you have to do IPR, indirect potable reuse, and that's taking that purified water, injecting it into the groundwater basin where it needs to be in contact in the aquifer for 60 days, and that allows for further purification through natural processes, and then that water is extracted through current production wells of each of the agencies uh, for distribution through their potable water system. And who are the stakeholders? What are the, the cities that are involved? The cities are the city of Rio Grande, Grover Beach, and Pismo Beach. From what your website, it looks like San Luis Obispo South County Sanitation is involved. They are a quote-unquote partner. They're very supportive of the project. Uh, in phase one, they're not really part of the project. They have participated in the EIR and they've participated in studies. The project's envisioned to be two phases. Phase two will take the South San Luis Obispo County Sanitation District's effluent, and with which uh, they provide wastewater services to Aurora Grande, Grover Beach, and Oceana, and then add that to the system. So they're part of the phase two. So a little bit of history. How did the project come about? Ten years ago or so, um, the city of Pismo Beach did a recycled water facilities planning study. The city of Pismo Beach had been headed towards tertiary recycled water, and that's the purple pipe you see around. Uh-huh. The city was going to implement a system like that, that water gets purified to a certain extent, but not to drinking water quality. And it's used for what's called potable water offset. You use it for irrigation and uh, things like that where you're not consuming it. But then it offsets the potable water use, makes the potable water available for drinking. As we were going down that route, uh, we did the recycled water facilities planning study to make sure that we were doing the right thing, both financially and as far as water supply goes. And what we found out, because of the layout of the city and the number of users that could actually use that tertiary treated water, that it was really going to be expensive on a cost per acre foot scale. Because when you look at your large water users, we had Shell Beach Elementary School, Judkins Middle School, some of the hotels and the city parks. And Pismo Beach is long. It's you know, only three miles wide, but about seven miles long. So transporting that water from our treatment plant to all of those different destinations, that distribution infrastructure became very expensive for the amount of water that was actually going to be used or offset. So some of the other things we looked at was raising the Lake Lopez uh, spillway to increase the capacity of Lake Lopez. The problem there is Lake Lopez hasn't spilled in years, so it's really not producing any water. That only really produces water if the lake were to spill. So that was kind of deemed not really a feasible project as far as we, we'd invest the money, but we wouldn't really get a return. Uh, lake Lopez right now is under 25%. So then we looked at desalination 
desalination, obviously people ask all the time, why don't you do desalination? We live right here on the coast. Uh, there's what some say an unlimited supply of water right, right there next to us. The problem with the desal is it's very, very expensive to get the salt out of the water. So as far as operation costs, it's much more expensive than doing the recycled water. And also the California Coastal Commission isn't a big fan of desal. And so it's very, very hard to get it permitted. So when we looked at the challenges of permitting and the cost of operation, and we compared all these other options, another option we looked at was increasing our state water supply. City of Pismo Beach is a state water subcontractor with the County of San Luis Obispo. Uh, why don't we just increase our state water supply? On the face value, that looks great. That looks really simple. All we got to do is write a check, basically, and we get water from the county. The problem is, is every year, the Department of Water Resources sets the delivery of state water, and this year, we're at 5%. So regardless of how much water we subscribe to, we get 5% of that number. So it, when you look at the history of state water deliveries, uh, they do fluctuate. They're based on the snowpack. They're based on the level of the state water reservoirs and several other factors. And when you look at the history, to rely on 100% of your state water, uh, it, it doesn't happen that often. So as we looked at these different things and the cost of each, the benefit of each, and we did a cost-benefit analysis, all arrows pointed towards the recycled water project. And that's how we settled in what was dubbed then as the Regional Groundwater Sustainability Project. The city of Pismo Beach went down this path. The South San Luis Obispo County Sanitary District did a similar study. It showed basically the same results. You should do this similar type project. It was silly for us to do a project and for them to do a project and say, why don't we just do one project? We'll all be partners. Uh, we'll split the cost, we'll share the resources. And that's how we came up with the Regional Groundwater Sustainability Project. And then as we started working on that project and it was gaining a momentum, uh, we rebranded re it as Central Coast Blue. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. KCBX contributor Stu Soren speaking with Ben Fine, Public Works Director and Engineer for the City of Pismo Beach, about the new water sustainability project called Central Coast Blue. Ben, where does Pismo Beach get their water now? So we have three sources of water. One is the Santa Maria Groundwater Basin. It's an adjudicated basin. It's also shared with uh, Arroyo Grande, Grover Beach, Oceano, um, and we manage that basin together. Uh, we also get our lake from Lake Lopez, um, which same players uh, there as well, um, and then the state water. So of those, the South County agencies, only Pismo Beach and Oceano are state water subcontractors. And so right now, no, you're not using any groundwater. Uh, we do use groundwater uh, on an average year. Our, our adjudication, um, so for those that don't know, um, adjudication is basically um, a court settlement. It's the, there was ongoing litigation, and the court adjudicated the basin, and they said, okay, each agency, you can take this much water a year. So our adjud adjudicated amount is 700 acre-feet per year, and of that, we're only drawing about 200 acre feet a year. 
So we do use some. Um, you know, the, the wells are, are a lot like a car. If you put a car in the garage and you don't drive it for 20 years and you go to start it, it's not going to start. And then when you do get it start, it's leaking oil, the bearings need to be replaced, and you just have all these issues. So our production wells are much the same. If they don't get exercised, they're not going to work. So we do continue to use them. We don't really rely on that water supply. We use our Lopez water and our state water mostly. So when you start this new project and you're going to be using more groundwater, what effect will it have on the water that you're currently using? So Lake Lopez is owned and operated by the County of San Luis Obispo Flood Control and Water Conservation District Zone 3. We refer to it as Zone 3. And for many years, uh, for many years, forever, since the 60s, when the original contracts were developed, the way that it worked is each agency got a their allotment of water for the city of Pismo Beach. It's 892 acre feet per year. And if we didn't use all of that water, the excess water, which they call surplus water, carries over and it goes into a pool. And each of the partner agencies in zone three is entitled to buy a portion of that surplus pool correlating to their percent stake ownership in the project. So for the city of Pismo Beach, we're about 18, 19% of the project. So if we save 100 acre feet, of that 100 acre feet, we get 19 acre feet back. So there's no incentive for us to conserve water. The city of Aurora Grande subscribes to Lopez at about 50%. So if the city of Pismo Beach saves 100 acre feet and you know conserves that water, the city of Aurora Grande can purchase 50 acre feet of that. And the surplus water is much lower cost than your allocation. So our conservation of Lake Lopez benefits the city of Rio Grande more than it benefits Pismo. So there's very little incentive for the city of Pismo to protect our local resource. So for about the last six years, we've been working cooperatively with the county and the other zone three agencies to revise the contracts and establish storage rights at Lake Lopez. The County Board of Supervisors approved the contract revisions about a month ago. The cities of Aurora Grande, Grover Beach, and Pismo have all also recently approved that. So that'll go into effect and that'll allow us to save or bank all unused water. So the impact of Central Coast Blue on the other resources is very positive with that change. Now as we draw more groundwater from Central Coast Blue, we won't be relying on Lopez as much. We'll be able to save that water. We have an incentive to save that water because we keep 100% of it. There are evaporation losses, but we keep 100% of that water. So as the agencies shift from surface water sources, that is state water and Lopez, towards groundwater, it allows us to protect our local resource of Lake Lopez. And hopefully what we'll see is once Central Coast Blue comes online in a couple years and we are able to pour more groundwater, we'll use less Lopez water and we'll be able to fill the reservoir. Another provision of that uh, contract revision is Oceano and Pismo can store state water there as well. So that contract change was really important as you look at your total water portfolio and water use in protecting our local resources. So Ben... How secure is Lake Lopez as a source of water in and of itself? In and of itself, it's been very secure and very reliable for the last 50 years. It was built in the late 60s. We are seeing today, we'll just call it concerning levels. 
as the climate we're seeing drier and drier and hotter and hotter weather. And, you know, the last few years we've seen very, very little rain. The lake hasn't replenished. So unless weather patterns return to our normal, um, and I I say our normal because as you look at water history, uh, there are many that believe as we look at water history, we look back about 100 years. And there's many who believe that that 100 years is a wet cycle as you look at the broader picture. So if we're judging and forecasting all of our water planning, forecasting, and use over the last 100 years, and that was a wet cycle in a broader spectrum, it's concerning. So if we do get rain, Lake Lopez will rebound. But as we look at other options and plan B, if you will, what is that? What does that look like? Well, that's Central Coast Blue. And when you talk about state water, can you just take a moment and explain to us what that is? Sure. So there's the California State Water System that is owned and operated by the Department of Water Resources. A lot of people hear the reservoir names, Shasta, Oroville, and some of these larger reservoirs. They're all part of the State Water Project. Uh, And those who bought into it get water, which is delivered by the state. And how secure would you call the state water system? So State Water Project, it's secure, but again, not reliable. This year, 5% delivery. This year actually started out with an unprecedented delivery, which was health and safety water. So that is if an agency had any stored state water, you can store state water and there's formulas on based on the delivery, how much water you can store based on your allocations. And, you know, we can spend an hour talking about that. But if you had stored state water, you got none. If you didn't have stored state water, uh, I believe it was 50 gallons per person per day was the allocation. In my lifetime, in my career, to my knowledge, they haven't done that before. They did later revise it, and the current delivery is at 5%. So the city of Pismo Beach uh, subcontracts with the county of San Luis Obispo for 1,240 acre feet. We get 5% of that. So it's not a lot of water. So going back to Central Coast Blue, Talk a little bit about the technology that is going to be used for this project. Obviously, you're going to be taking wastewater treatment, you're going to be treating it, and then you're going to be injecting it back into the ground. Has this been done before? What's the history of this? So this has been done before. They've been doing it in Orange County for years. Monterey has a project. There's actually several... I don't know if you want to call them local agencies, but Monterey, Oxnard um, have you know projects like this, Morro Bay. They're actually just wrapping up construction on a very similar system. There's several studies you have to do with the groundwater basin. You need to do leaching studies. You need to do modeling of where the water goes once it's injected. They haven't done those yet, and they haven't uh, built injection wells or injection infrastructure. To my knowledge, they're estimating they're about three to four years away from actually injecting the water into the ground, but they have the system built. In fact, I toured it last week. So there are a lot of other places that do this. Some consider to be cutting edge, but it's been around for quite a while. Is it a new facility that you'll be building on the site of your existing wastewater treatment facility? So there was a long process on where this gets built. Uh, Originally, we were thinking, yes, we'd build it at the city of Pismo Beach wastewater treatment plant. We're a little short as far as footprint goes for, you know, land. Um, We looked at building it at the South San Luis 
county sanitation district's uh, plant at their site. There's some challenges there. They're in a floodplain and some other issues. What we ended up settling on is the city of Pismo Beach purchased a piece of property in Grover Beach, and the facility will be built there. We're actually forming a JPA, a Joint Powers Authority, that will have a three-member board, one member from each city. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the JPA will own and operate Central Coast Blue. So that parcel that the city of Pismo bought, uh, when the JPA is formed, will deed it over to the JPA. They'll own the land, they'll own the facility, they'll operate it, um, they'll hire the employees. Uh, We envision at this point there'll be contract employees and the city of Pismo Beach will supply the water. So you will pipe then the water coming from the treatment plant to this new facility. It'll be treated at the new facility. And then how will you then deliver it to the groundwater? Right now, the city of Pismo Beach shares an ocean outfall with, we'll just call it the district, the South San Luis Obispo County Sanitation District. We'll just refer to them as the district. Uh, We have a joint outfall. So our effluent is piped uh, basically to their plant where it meets up, and then there's a Y, and the two flows of effluent join, one discharge to the ocean. The piece of property we bought is really close to our discharge line. So what we'll do is we'll cut that line, we'll reroute the water to the plant, and then there is a brine and a waste that's produced from the recycled water process. That'll be piped back to our existing outfall. So we're basically just adding a little uh, circuit in the loop, if you will. And then we'll use our existing outfall line to get the water there, uh, our existing outfall line to get the brine to discharge. And then as far as getting the water to the basin, we have to build the distribution infrastructure. So we will build pipelines and injection wells, four or five injection wells that'll inject the water into the groundwater basin. And one of the advantages with Central Coast Blue is Uh, These injection wells are spaced out along the coast and inject the water and create a saltwater intrusion barrier. So one of our concerns is as we pump and draw water out of the basin, the basin draws down. If anybody's familiar with pumps and pump curves and whatever, uh, as you pump water out of the basin, the aquifer gets drawn down and depending on how low it goes, creates conditions that are favorable for the salt water to move into the basin. So as that water is injected along the coast, it creates a saltwater intrusion barrier or a curtain, if you will, to hold that saltwater back. You're getting a two-for-one. One, you're getting additional water into the basin, uh, new water that can be extracted. And two, you're building that curtain so you can draw the basin lower than you could have without the project. You started to drill one well already down in the dunes area, is that correct? We drilled a test injection well, and that was part of the testing process. Uh, There's a lot of good information we got out of that. Uh, We envisioned of potentially using that as one of the injection wells. However, there's an ongoing fee we would have to pay to the county. Uh, The county has been a very good partner to us and uh, very helpful throughout the project. And, you know, when we first made the deal with the county for the test injection well, I was I, I didn't understand why is the county charging us, you know, an annual fee to have a well here? It's for the benefit of the cities and the county. The well's located in the RV park, and the RV park is an enterprise fund. That is, the only revenue that that park gets is the revenue they bring in. So the county was charging us really just their lost revenue 
for the footprint that the well takes up. They were you know, trying to be a very good partner, and, and I totally get it. I run two enterprise funds myself as the director of public works. I have my water enterprise fund and my wastewater enterprise fund. And if something happens that reduces the income of either one of those funds, I have less operating funds. It's not supplemented by the general fund at all. The only money coming in is the rates that people pay. So if the county just said, yeah, you can go ahead and put it there, and they're losing a spot, they're losing the revenue, they still have to maintain their water system in the park, their wastewater system in the park, their maintenance of the park, their employees of the park, and they just can't do it without that revenue. Um, So there's that ongoing cost. So we're currently looking for locations where we can make a one-time payment um, and purchase an easement and put the uh, the wells either on, on an easement on private property or an easement on public property where there's not this ongoing fee to help reduce costs. And then you will then pump that water into your system for delivery to your consumers. Correct. Uh, we'll just use our existing production wells and draw that water out of the basin. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. KCBX contributor Stu Soren speaking with Ben Fine, Public Works Director and Engineer for the City of Pismo Beach, about the new water sustainability project called Central Coast Blue. It seems like as well there's going to be many, many environmental benefits of this project. Obviously, you're going to be putting less affluent into the ocean. Correct. Okay. And in terms of water supply, do you have any idea what phase one of this, at least before before the South County Sanitary District gets involved, any idea how much water this will be saving you or be allowing you the city to use? So we're estimating total yield of the project to be about 900 acre feet per year. And how much of that, what percentage of your total water use would that be? So that's for total projects. Now, when you look at the total project, We're looking at about 324 acre feet for the city of Pismo, and we're currently using um, about 1,750 acre feet per year. So it'll provide about 18% of our total water supply. That's a great return. It really is. And the other key thing to remember is this is a largely drought-proof supply of water. It's not relying on rainfall. It's not relying on weather conditions. Um, It's water through the system. And when the second phase, if indeed the second phase happens, obviously it's going to be even a greater impact on the total water supply. Correct. Okay. Uh, So where's the project now? What's the status? Right now, the project is in uh, design phase. We have 30% architectural plans for the building that will house the facility. We know the technology that's going to go inside of it. And we're hoping to have our plans ready to go by around the end of the year. And we'll be able to bid it and go to construction. And all the environmental impact studies have been done? Yes, but no. So we did an environmental impact report. And we've known all along that we're going to need to do a supplemental to that once the uh, sites of the injection wells are finalized. Okay. And in terms of project construction time frame? As far as how long it's going to take? Right. I'm going to estimate it to be about a year-ish to construct. So realistically, it could be online by 2024? Uh, 2024, 2025, yes. Excellent. And funding, what are your funding sources for this? So we've been very fortunate. Uh, as we were going through the planning and development stage, we were awarded a Prop 1 planning grant, and that provided us with I believe it was a million dollars to help us get through the planning phase of this project. We applied for a Prop 1 implementation grant that we should be finding out uh, really 
any day now uh, within the next couple of weeks whether or not we were successful there. We did receive a Title 16 grant, $14.1 million. So that was, you know, a big boost to the project. Once we find out about all of our grants, there's going to be a shortfall between grant funding and project costs. We're looking at state revolving fund. We're looking at WIFIA loans, and we're looking at uh, water rates from each of the agencies to cover that shortfall. And then during construction, obviously, if you're talking construction through 2023, it sounds like, will there be much community impact for running lines or what, drilling additional wells, or should the community expect much? So as far as the plant goes, there'll be very little impact. It's, you know, on a large lot in Grover Beach at the end of a dead-end street. Um, to the adjacent businesses, there will be construction noise and whatnot. The distribution infrastructure will have an impact to the community. Uh, whenever you're putting uh, any type of in- infrastructure in the roads, uh, there's, there's an impact, and we'll work our best to minimize those. Is there anything else you'd like to add that I didn't ask? You know, one of the things with this project that really made sense is the partner agencies have been working together on water resource management cooperatively for years, for decades, actually. Um, So it really made sense that we partner with this project as well. Uh, We're partners in the groundwater basin. We're partners in Lake Lopez. Uh, It makes sense that we're partners uh, here in Central Coast Blue as well. So that part of it really made sense. And as people are looking for more information, they can go to the city's website, pismobeach.org. They can email me, engineering at uh, pismobeach.org. There's a website, centralcoastblue.com. You can go there. And then also the cities of Oro Grande and Pismo Beach have partnered on water conservation years ago during the last drought. And we created a website, thinkh2o.com. And you can go there for all sorts of different water conservation ideas and tips. Um, But I just encourage folks listening to conserve, conserve, conserve. We are in a drought. And one of the things that concerns me about this drought is during the last drought, people were really aware of it. People were very conscious about water conservation. And my perception is with this drought, although it's worse, there's a lot less focus and a lot less people really paying attention to their water use. Do your part to help conserve and get us through the drought. Absolutely. Ben, thank you so very, very much for joining us today. We appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. That was KCBX contributor Stu Soren speaking with Ben Fine, Public Works Director and Engineer for the City of Pismo Beach, about the new water sustainability project called Central Coast Blue. And finally, SING is a free choral program in Santa Barbara County offered by the Music Academy of the West. All children in grades 1 through 6 can participate through the after-school program. Contributor Beth Thornton has more. Those are the voices of Santa Barbara school children in first through sixth grades, warming up for their first all-choir rehearsal in this year's SING program. SING, with an exclamation point, is a free choral program offered by the Music Academy of the West and coordinated through after-school programs on elementary school campuses. Ellen Barger is with the Santa Barbara County Education Office. We wanted to bring SING to where the children are instead of forcing parents to try to take off work or, you know, to try to get their children 
to this program. And that's why we placed it in the after-school programs. Barger, who's also on the board of the Music Academy, says SING creates opportunities for all students, regardless of income, to have music instruction at a world-class level. SING has been designed with attention to equity and based on the belief that while talent may be equally distributed, opportunity is not. Barger says the president of the Music Academy started the program in 2018 after a trip to London. He learned about the London Symphony Orchestra's youth choral program and brought the idea back to Santa Barbara. Barger says Singh has six school sites around the county, and they hope to grow the program over time. Currently, we're only serving the southern part of the county from Carpinteria to Goleta, but we have plans to expand over the next several years to the full county. The program is fully funded by the Music Academy through grants and donations. And Barger says all children, regardless of where they attend school, can participate at one of the after-school sites at no charge. All children from all local schools, and that can be public schools, charter schools, private schools, home schools, every single child in the area is invited. Erin McKibben is the program director with the Music Academy. She says sing is performance-oriented, but students first learn the fundamentals of music. They also learn the importance of teamwork. They learn that their voice really does matter. They have opportunities to shine individually, but, but they learn that they are really crucial to making um, the whole group successful. She says singing in a choir is a great way for children to express themselves. They also perform songs in a variety of languages, which she says introduces them to music from other cultures throughout the world. So whatever they go off to do, they will have a greater uh, degree of empathy and understanding of others. And that's, I think, the main goal of our, of our choral program. About 150 students are signed up for this year. And McKibben says the children make a commitment to attend rehearsals after school and also at the Music Academy. You know, expect quite a lot of our singers. So they, they go to two during the week and then uh, once a month, actually, um, we provide transportation to our monthly all-choir rehearsals. Um, and they are here at the Music Academy. McKibben says many of the children and their families have never been to the Music Academy, located just up the road from Butterfly Beach in Santa Barbara. The Music Academy is a 10-acre estate that regularly hosts musicians from around the world. The building itself is a work of art with music halls, practice studios, and gardens. It's just really fun to see them step into this beautiful space and, and own it and know that they, they belong here and, uh, and this is their choir and their space to be in. Fifth grader Nikki Sarui says the children's choir sometimes performs on the big stage with visiting artists. It's really fun. We get all these like privileges. For example, like who gets to sing in the Granada Theater with Sir Simon Rattle and the like London Symphony Orchestra. Nikki attends Hollister Elementary School in Goleta. She says since joining Sing three years ago, music has become an important part of her life, along with school and sports. My favorite part of the program is my friends, my teachers, and like our voices all combined together. Nikki recently took up piano too. Her mother, Esam Faze, says the program inspires her daughter and the whole family to learn more and more about music. Music helps you when you are sad, it helps you when you are happy, it helps you for everything. Faye says sing brings children together, which is especially meaningful after so much pandemic isolation.
She says her daughter is making music and memories. For KCBX, I'm Beth Thornton. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Thank you.